There we go. All right. It's ironic the tech guy has tech problems. Well, um, the good news is this is the last week you have to put up with me, and uh, the A-team will be back next week, and uh, you get to hear from Randy. But um, there's something I've been wanting to do and thinking about rolling around in my head for a while, and uh, so that's what today's sermon is. It's basically me wanting to put down in some kind of cohesive whole everything that we've learned at GBC over the last, I don't know, however many years. And um, we, 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 we learn things, and we learn new things, and we've learned so many new things here. And then to try to take all of that and think about it together in a, what's the word, holistic way, I guess, is the, that term for it, and um, put it all together. So, you know, uh, it ends up, kind of being, as I was writing it out, it almost is like a statement of faith in some ways, or a creed, but it's my uh, grand unified theory of Grace Bible Church, for lack of a better term. And so um, some of this, in fact all of this, uh, is going to be things that you've heard before, um, but I want to take it all and put it together and make a Christian worldview out of all the different new things that we have learned over the years. And um, so it's kind of looking back at the history of God in this world and his chesed. Remember, that means his faithfulness, right? His faithful love. And so that's what we get in the Bible as we look at that is God's faithful love. And so everything starts with God, always. He is the center of the story. He is, uh, you know, he's the star uh, at the center, and I don't mean like Hollywood star, but like he's the center of gravity around which everything else revolves. And so God, he is creator God. He is eternal. He is holy. Holy means unique, set aside, different. There's no one like God, and he is uncreated. He is the uncreated one. So he's eternally self-existent. This means that God has always existed and always will. Uh, he doesn't need anyone or anything else to exist. He's not created. So in Exodus, when Moses first meets God in the burning bush, uh, he asks, what do I call you? And so let me just read that from Exodus 3. Moses protested because God told him he's supposed to go rescue his people from slavery. Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. They will ask me, what is his name? And then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So God identifies himself as I am. In other words, not he was or he will be or uh, anything like that, but I am. He is eternally existence. And he also gives him the name Yahweh, which, as you can see on the screen, I think, says Y-H-W-H. It kind of looks 
our English take on the Hebrew version of that, but it means I am. So there is how God identifies himself to Moses. God exists eternally on his own, but he exists in something we call the Trinity. And uh, I'm sure you've heard of this Trinity, but it, it does one of those words where it's not in the Bible, but as you read through, you understand that this is how God exists and how he works. And Jesus revealed that to us in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, there's evidence of the Trinity. So often uh, in the Old Testament, you'll run into this character called the angel of the Lord. And it's more than just an angel, and we'll get to angels in a little bit. But it's obviously more than just an angel because the angel speaks for Jesus or for God. And as he speaks, he says, I want you to do this as it's coming from God. So the Jews uh, had this idea of a second power in heaven or a second Yahweh based on this idea that got forgotten. Around the time Jesus came, they stopped with this idea because obviously Jesus kind of fulfilled that, right? He's the second part of the Trinity. But as you read back through the Old Testament, it's there. It's very plain. Um, In fact, speaking of the burning bush, if we go look at that, in the burning bush, it's the angel that speaks from the bush. That's what Moses sees. But Yahweh also speaks from the bush. So in the burning bush, there's two different figures. And so one is the angel of the Lord and one is Yahweh, the invisible Yahweh. And they're both characters in the burning bush scene. So... There is, in the Old Testament, lots of stuff about there being someone else besides God the Father. And you find the angel of the Lord in other places. Um, You find him leading the people of Israel and uh, interacting with people. And this is what we call, um, in big terms, they call it a theophany. It just means that this is the son before he became human, but he comes in human form and interacts with humans and uh, speaks to them. And then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned throughout the Old Testament, starting with the second verse of the Bible, right? We'll get to that here in a second. And uh, then God is referred to as a father in Psalms and throughout. So it may not have the word Trinity in the Bible, but the idea is definitely there, and you can see God acting. And so what does that mean, that he's a Trinity? It's one of those things that's really hard to explain. People have tried to come up with different ways, and none of them really fully explain God being a Trinity. But... It means that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're separate, but they're all God, and it's just one person, but eternally existent in three things. And it's one of those things where our our minds can't really wrap around it, but someday, hopefully, when we are there with them, we'll understand how that works. But all three of those, uh, all three of the Trinity were involved at creation, as an example. So we can read Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we've got the Spirit of God, right? We've got the Holy Spirit there. And we've got God creating. In verse 3, God says, let there be light, and there was light. So we've got the Spirit, and we've got God the Father. And John 1, 1 through 4 tells us, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word is John's name for Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. 
The word gave life to everything and was created that was created and his life brought light to everyone. So Jesus was involved in creation. He was not just something that came later. Jesus actually was doing the creating. So we've got all three there right in the very beginning of the Bible. We've got all three of the Trinity involved. So then God created heaven and earth, or the heavens and earth. And in the Bible, there's uh, at least three different heavens, three that we talk about. One just means the sky, right? The heavens, so you look at that. The second idea of heaven can be the spiritual realm. This is where the spiritual beings live and exist and do their thing. And then there's also the heaven that is God's uh, home where his throne is and the eternal realm. So God created heavens and the earth at the beginning of Genesis 1. He spoke them into existence. He didn't actually have to build anything or do anything. Just his word is so powerful that he spoke and everything we know was created. And he did this for his own purposes and for his glory. At creation, he created everything else that lives and exists. He created all living beings, humans, animals. He created plants. Uh, he created the earth and all the things on it. He created angels and created all the other spiritual beings. And so that's the next thing we're going to look at are these spiritual beings on the spiritual realm. And we use the word Elohim for that. Sometimes the word Elohim will get used as a proper name for God, but often it's just a name for a spiritual being. It's a designation of where something is from or their realm. It's not a designation of position. So you can say someone is an Elohim just means they're a spiritual being. God is a spiritual being, so he is a Elohim, but he's also the Elohim, right? So some examples of these, you guys are familiar with angels, and uh, angels just means messengers. So angels are God's messengers. And then we have um, also cherubim and seraphim and the divine council. So let me read you a description of the cherubim real quick from Ezekiel 10. So Ezekiel's having this vision. And he says, this is uh, Ezekiel 10, 8. All the cherubim had what looked like human hands under their wings. I looked, and each of the four cherubim had a wheel beside him, and the wheel sparkled like beryl. All four wheels looked alike and were made the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. So these wheels, I think, are chariots. The Bible talks about God's chariot. The cherubim could move in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved, and they went straight in the direction they faced, never turning aside. Both the cherubim and the wheels were covered with eyes. The cherubim had eyes all over their bodies, including their hands, their backs, and their wings. I heard someone refer to the wheels as the whirling wheels. Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox, the second was a human face, the third was the face of a lion, and the fourth was the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose upward. These were the same living beings I had seen beside the Kibar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved with them, and when they lifted their wings to fly, the wheels stayed beside them. When the cherubim stopped, the wheels stopped, and when they flew upward, the wheels rose up, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels." We also read about cherubim back in the beginning in Genesis 3, after God uh, kicks Adam and Eve out of Eden, uh, he stations cherubim. Verse 24 of chapter 3 of Genesis, After sending them out, the Lord stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, 
and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In uh, the Old Testament, as they, when they had the temple, and inside the temple was the Holy of Holies, and they had statues of the cherubim inside the, uh, the Holy of Holies that were around the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was God's footstool. So cherubim are throne guardians, and you see that in many places where in Ezekiel and others where they have visions of God and he's on his throne, there's cherubim around him. And they're, guard, they're throne guardians. So that's another kind of spiritual being that exists that the Bible tells us about. We also read about seraphim, and they sound similar to the cherubim, but they have different wings and different roles. So back, let's look at Isaiah. He also is having a vision. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. So that's seraphim. They're a little different, but they are also associated with God's throne. And I think they show up again in Revelation 4. We hear about the living beings. They sound a lot like seraphim. They may be something different. Revelations 4, 6 through 8. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And so, I uh, don't know what those beasts are. They sound a little like a seraphim. They sound like, like a cherubim. But they're more spiritual creatures that exist in heaven, in God's realm. These are not angels, we think of angels and we think of all the spiritual beings are angels, but they're not all angels. Angels are messengers, are given a message. And we've got these other things in here. So besides all them, we have the divine council. Let's read Psalm 82, verses 1. Psalm of Asaph. God presides over heaven's court, or his divine council. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I say, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So the divine council are other spiritual beings that God, and we'll read a little bit about this later, I know I keep saying that, but it all ties together and some things have to build on others. They're spiritual beings that God has given uh, control over the nations to, and here in Psalm 82, he's judging them because they haven't done what he's told them to do, and they are oppressing people. In Daniel 10, we run into one of these guys also. We have an angel, and he's uh, bringing a message to Daniel but he's also fighting against one of these people who were on the divine council that are in charge of a nation. 
So Daniel 10, on April 23rd, as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. He was shining. He was bright and shiny. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. And then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. I'd be pretty afraid if I ran into that. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So we've got the spirit prince, that's one of these beings from the divine council. And then you also have mention of an archangel, which is some form of order of angel. So we've got all these spiritual beings that exist out there. We can call them Elohim because they're spiritual beings. They exist in the spiritual realm. That's where they're from. So much more that exists than we ever really think when you think of angels. Because God is infinitely creative, and he creates all kinds of things, and he wants all kinds of beings in relationship with him. All right. So besides the spiritual beings, God also created humans. And uh, he created humans along with the rest of the physical realm. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, let's start with that. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Just stop there. So we're made to be in God's image. What does that mean? A lot of times... We're told that that means we have characteristics like God or attributes like God. But obviously we don't have all of God's attributes. And, uh, you know, there's you can say things like, well, we can communicate or we have the ability to think independently. And those are true. But what does that mean to really be made in God's image? And if someone, let's say, is in a coma, does that mean they're no longer in God's image because they can no longer think for themselves or have the attributes of a person, I would say no, they're still in God's image. And so being in in his image is like carrying his image or carrying his name. So it's a role, not necessarily attributes. So we have the same role. God's given us a similar role in creation uh, that he has over all of creation. And so we'll read that. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And here's the role. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So there's a role of us being reigning over earth that was the original thing with adam and eve it was where they were to extend god's kingdom throughout the world and that's part of the role is to extend god's kingdom and to be reigning with him under him so we were made to serve god to have that relationship with him and to be an extension of his kingdom god made human beings male and female both male and females carry God's image. It's not one or the other. They're both. He also 
when he created humans and made them male and female, he gave them marriage. So in Genesis 2, we get a little zoom in on the creation of humans. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So marriage is instituted right at the very beginning as something that's holy and extends God's purposes. And as we learn through the rest of Scripture, there are some other things about marriage that are important. It's a reflection of the Trinity because there's two people that are joined into one, and they work together as one to accomplish what God has for them to accomplish. It's also a reflection of God's love for his people. Uh, The church is called Christ's bride very often, and so we are encouraged as men to lay down our lives for our wives as Christ loved the church. And the church is to also love and respect the man in the same way that the the woman is in marriage relationship as the church does for Christ. I kind of messed that up as I said it, but you know what I mean. But... um, so there's a reflection of God's love for his people in the marriage relationship. It's also a marriage was for filling the earth and fulfilling this covenant that he had with Adam and Eve. They were to fill the earth, right, and rule over it. So there's at least three things about marriage. So we have this little initial covenant and with Adam that God had going on and Eve and what he wanted them to do. But then we encounter rebellions, and there's three rebellions. You guys are... Most people are familiar with the first one in Genesis 3, but there's actually three big rebellions. There's a lot of small rebellions, but there's three that impact humanity in the direction. The first is Genesis 3. This is Adam and Eve's sin, and you're familiar with this, but just to read it. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. God never said they couldn't touch it. He just said they couldn't eat it. The servant says, you won't die. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. So you can't put the blame on Eve. Adam was there the whole time and participated. So Adam and Eve sinned, and the desire of their sin was to be like God. They wanted to know good and evil and choose that for themselves and to have their own say on what makes good and evil. And the result of that 
was death. No longer are they living in in Eden in literal paradise. Now they have to go work hard and do their own thing outside of Eden, no longer in that relationship with God where God lived in Eden with them. They are now separated and there's death. There's another rebellion in Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 6, 5 tells us, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So by the time, this is just a few chapters later, we get here and their earth is completely, consistently and totally evil, everything they think. And not only that, but then you have these Elohim, or B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, who come down and they, they lust after human women and they have sex with them and they create this twisted thing that God did not create called Nephilim, which is kind of a half Elohim, half human. And sounds weird, but it's there in Genesis 6. And uh, God says this is enough, and that's where the flood comes in to destroy the world. And uh, <clears throat> after the flood, as Israel, this is much later, um, but as Israel is working their way into, um, the nation of Israel is working their way up and into the promised land, there's little cities where there's still people who are descended from the Nephilim that happens again after the flood, and God has them fight against those people. And that's where, in those stories, when God has them totally destroy a town, it's because that's where the Nephilim descendants are. And so this is a rebellion of um, spiritual beings trying to create their own twisted take on humanity that is worshiping them instead of God. And so that's why it's so abhorrent to God. And then there's another rebellion in Genesis 11. You guys know the story of the Tower, Tower of Babel? So in Genesis 11... Uh, after the flood, sorry, let's start. Let's go back there. After the flood, God had told Noah and his descendants to go fill the earth again, just like He told Adam and Eve. He told them to go fill the earth, spread out, fill it with humanity, extend My kingdom around the earth. And instead, they don't do that. The humans don't do that. Genesis eleven four. The humans they said, "Come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous." and will keep us from being scattered all over the world. So there's a rebellion here, again, of not doing what God has told them to do, not obeying the mandate that he's given humans to extend his kingdom all over the world. They're just going to do their own thing. They're going to build a tower. And a tower, to us, sounds like a tower, but to them, it's it's more likely a ziggurat. In fact, I learned recently they actually know, more or less, where the Tower of Babel was. And you can go, like, archaeologically... It's been found. So it's a ziggurat, which is kind of that old Mesopotamian, almost like a pyramid stack thing. It's a place to worship, but not God, not Yahweh. They wanted to make themselves great. So just like in Genesis 3, the desire was to be like God and choose good and evil. In Genesis 6, everybody wanted to choose their own good and evil, and the, the heavenly beings wanted to create this own twisted version of people that is their own thing. Here in uh, Genesis 11, the rebellion is also, again, to be like God, to make a name for themselves instead of carrying out God's name. So as a result, God divides humanity. He splits them up, 
gives everybody their own languages, and so they no longer can communicate and work together. So they have to spread out into these tribes. But beyond that, we learn in uh, Deuteronomy 32, which I did not print out. Uh, Let me pull that up real quick. Sorry about that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, so this is the Tower of Babylon, Genesis 11, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, or Israel, is his allotted heritage. So God... In Deuteronomy 32, we learn that not only did God split the people, but he put these sons of God, these uh, Elohim, in charge of the nations, but he kept Israel as his own portion. So we'll see how that goes. So then throughout the Bible, the rest of the Bible, we see God working with humanity to bring his plan for redemption into motion. And he does this through various covenants with people. So a covenant, I'm going to... Read this quote here. A covenant is a relationship between two partners who make a binding promise to each other and they work together to reach a common goal. Covenants are often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants define define obligations and commitments, but they are different from a contract because they are relational and personal. Think of a marriage. A husband and a wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in lifelong faithfulness and devotion. They then work as partners to reach a common goal, like building a life or raising children together. Entering into covenants was a major part of what it meant to live in the ancient Near East. So God partnered with humans through a structure they already understood. So we've already seen a covenant with Adam, where God created humans in his image and his role to partner with him in spreading his reign or kingdom throughout the world. And the terms of that covenant included not eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, And we know that Adam and Eve, they failed. They ate from the tree. They fractured that relationship, and they plunged humanity into corruption and death. But God had a plan, and the rest of the Bible is about God repairing this broken relationship. And he does so with this series of covenants. Noah, in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. And I'll just read a little bit from Genesis 9. Here's a covenant God makes with Noah. After the flood. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for your food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it, and I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. And let's skip down a little bit. Verse 7. Now be fruitful and multiply, then repopulate the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. 
Never again will the floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures and for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. So there's a covenant God makes with Noah. He says, go fill the earth. Go multiply. But his part of the covenant is unconditional. He says, I will be faithful and I will never flood the earth again. And the sign, the reminder of that is the rainbow in the sky. God also makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 16, places along there. Um, Abraham is to follow God where he leads, and he's to train his family to do what is right. And God promises to give Abraham's family, into, he turn it into a nation, and to give them a land for them to live in. And he says all nations will be blessed through Abraham's family. So it's a covenant with Abraham to bless Abraham, but in turn, everything on earth will be blessed. And we also have the covenant that God made uh, through Moses with Israel. This is often the one we think of when we think of the old covenant or the, the, uh, the law. This one is found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Basically, God says to Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. And all the other nations around you will know that there is a God because they're going to see me bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to punish you. And all the other nations around you will know there is a God because they see me punishing you. So either way, they're going to know I'm God. But if you do what's right, then you'll be blessed. So Israel's allegiance to Yahweh was to be outwardly reflected in the way that they lived, keeping the commandments and you know things like observing the Sabbath rest. It also set up that sacrificial, sacrificial system. And they had the temple where God lived and uh, dwelled, and they could come approach him and... Uh, meet with God there at the temple. And we also have a covenant that God sets up with David. Uh, David wants to honor God and build him a temple, and God says, it's not for you. Your son will do it, but I will do this covenant with you. So David becomes a successful leader. He's overcome all of Israel's enemies. He's restored order to the kingdom. God responds by making a covenant with David, promising to make his name great to raise up a descendant from David's line whose throne and kingdom will last forever. So, and then eventually he says, you, your son is going to build the temple, but you will have a descendant and his throne will never end, never end. And this covenant is also unconditional. It doesn't rely on David or his children's faithfulness. He's just going to accomplish it. But if David you know, is or his children are unfaithful, they will be punished, but God will still fulfill his part of the of the covenant. And then there's the new covenant. And we'll read more about that. But amidst rebellion and exile, the Hebrew prophets spoke of a new covenant. They were saying that God would one day fulfill all of his promises, repairing his relationship with his people and blessing the nations through him, through them. Jeremiah 31 spoke of the new covenant. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. And I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. So those are the covenants. Those are what God's using throughout the Old Testament to work and do make things happen and point people to him 
and to his ultimate salvation. And then we see that fulfilled in Jesus. We finally get to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants. And what that means is, even though humans broke their part of the covenant, God still kept his part, and Jesus is him keeping his part of the covenant. So he's the fulfillment. You can think of Jesus as like the, you know, bump, 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 and then Jesus is the bump, bump, right? So he's the end, and until you get that bump, bump, it's just kind of hanging out there, and you don't know what to do with it. Well, here comes Jesus. He's that. Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand while I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. The prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Luke four sixteen through 21. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled to this has been fulfilled this very day. Also in Luke, at the later, uh, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus, uh, this is Luke 22, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. This is the Last Supper. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which has poured out as a sacrifice for you. So the, Jesus is fulfilling the new covenant that uh, the prophets were saying was going to come. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant, the sacrificial system, the things that God set up for them. Jesus is the ultimate sac- sacrifice. And so that's the good news. The good news is that we can be part of God's kingdom by faith in Jesus because of his sacrificial, his sacrificial actions on the cross. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life. Eternal life isn't just about a length of time, but a quality of life. We either spend life in God's kingdom as his children, or we spend eternal life outside the kingdom. Your choice. Second, and then uh, let's read this from Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. Man, does that sound familiar? Let's go on social media. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs, heirs with the hope of eternal life. We've all been foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by our passions. All that. But thanks to God's sacrifice, through Jesus' sacrifice, the washing of us with his blood and the regeneration by the Holy Spirit, 
we have access. We can become heirs, children of God, with the hope of eternal life. And so we become part of the kingdom, and we can leave this, live this kingdom life. And we profess faith in Jesus, we enter into his kingdom. And we're not just waiting around for heaven. It's not get saved and just wait till you die and you go to heaven, get your mansion in the sky by and by. There's things here and now that, we, that happen because we're part of his kingdom. So we can abide in Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. John 15, 4 through 5 says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit. If it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be... Sorry. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are to remain in Jesus or abide in him. It sounds nice, but what does that mean? How do we do that? Well, we have things called spiritual disciplines. Meditation, prayer, fasting, worship, study, service. These are all things, and there's an almost endless list of spiritual disciplines that will help you abide in Jesus. But probably the most important is prayer and meditation on his word. Those are good places to start. So that's part of being in the kingdom life is abiding in Jesus. But we're also empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this life. Second Peter 1 says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So by God's power, we can live a life that's holy. Holy, remember, doesn't mean sinless or perfect. Holy means set aside. It means different. It means to be like God, but not perfect, but be set aside. He enables us to live that life despite our culture around us, or the circumstances of our life, our desires, our fleshly desires, all these things we tend to say control us and what we do. That's just who we are. We're just born that way. But God says, you may have been born that way, but you've been reborn with me. And there is more to this life, and I've given you the Holy Spirit to enable you to live the life I want you to live. Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There it is again. On heaven, every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, we may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he's given us these tools to live a life in the kingdom, to do the things he he wants us to do, to fulfill that mandate of ruling with him. So he's given us the fruit of the Spirit as we dwell in him and abide in him. We see the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all things that come from being rooted in Jesus and being part of his vine. You can't 
do these things, grow these things on your own. We can try. You can be kind of good, but you can't be really good. You can be kind of faithful, but you can't be fully faithful. But if we allow God to work in our lives through the Holy Spirit, these are the things he produces. These are the fruit, okay? They come from that. Fruit, if you think about it, is for reproduction and enjoyment. Fruit from a tree is to make more trees, right? So as we overflow with the fruit of the Spirit, it helps us to make other Christians because we're building these things into our lives also. Also, it brings us enjoyment because we now have peace and patience and all those things. God has also given us the gifts of the Spirit to help us to live that life. And I won't go through all those again because we've just had the Fanerosa series, but you can go find that and listen. But those, as a reminder, the gifts of the Spirit, they're for serving and building Jesus' church. They're also to show to those spiritual powers that we learned about earlier that God is in control and he's got his people here and his wisdom is greater than theirs. So through all of that, we can also participate in the life of God's kingdom through the church. Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So they were uh, sharing in instruction and scripture and God's message. They were sharing in real fellowship and encouragement. Um, We've learned that that word or that concept is paraclesis, where you actually come alongside somebody and encourage them and help them out and lift them up not just, all right, that's really nice, you know, go on your way. He's actually going to pray for somebody. Prayer is powerful. It's taking our concerns to the Lord of the universe, the holy, uncreated one who has all power. And so we're actually going to pray for people and encourage them. Hebrews 10.24, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So if you think that things are bad and it looks like maybe we're getting near the end, then you should be even more and more motivated to get together with other believers and encourage each other to acts of good works, to acts you know, of love and good works. The believers also worship together, and so that's something we do. Colossians 3.16, Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. So we come together in a church for corporate worship and to worship together. And then we also have discipleship. So we're not just learning about God. We're also helping other people to grow closer to him and to reproduce more Christians, and that's discipleship. And there are some tools that uh, God gave the church for that. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God people, God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we, we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's discipleship. 
in a nutshell. Other things that we do together in a church include uh, baptism and communion. These are things that God, as Jesus said we should do. We baptize new believers, people who, uh, even old believers, it doesn't matter how old you are, um, <laughs> but people who want to make a public uh, you know, confession of faith, we do communion. Uh, Jesus said we are to do communion and to remember his sacrifice. And the important thing to remember about the church, in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus says this, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now there's a lot to unpack in that, especially if you come from a Catholic background, but the important thing to notice is I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. Not us with our clever, you know, advertising campaigns or bounce houses or the best worship service you could ever have with the best band and the most amazing speaker. All those things are building something, but it's under God. It's under your own power. God, Jesus says he will build his church. So we rely on Jesus for that, not our own cleverness. But wait, there's more. So I'm not even covering what happens at the end. But we do know that Jesus is coming back. Believers will join him in eternity. Earth is going to be renewed, rebuilt like it was in the beginning. And heaven and earth will be joined as one kingdom under Jesus. We get to reign with him and rule and have participate in his kingdom. It's all out there. So there's my summary of things we have learned. And of course, that's focused on things that stood out to me. You may have other things that were important to you over the years, but this is my attempt to put it all together. And uh, so, sorry that you had to listen to that, but I think hopefully it's helpful for someone to kind of put it all together in one thing because there's so many cool things and it's easy to focus on one thing and forget about the other. It's all true. It's all important. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your infinite wisdom. Your ways are higher than our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and we can't even begin to comprehend the the wisdom that you have in putting the world together, the love that you have for us. And Father, we know that through your spirit, you can empower us to, to know that, to spread it to other people. Father, I just pray for Grace Bible Church and for your church around the world that we would be people who are seeking after you. Father, there's so many things to divide and yet we have the most precious thing of all to unify around, which is you and your love for us. And uh, I just pray for everyone here this morning that we would take the knowledge and looking back over your faithfulness through all generations from the very beginning of time on into the future. And that would not just be information in our head, but would be life-changing. And I pray for your spirit to empower all of us to do the work you have us to do. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.